Welcome to Decision Insights, a podcast produced for the University of Southern Queensland's Master of Business Administration. I'm Dr. Daniel Maddock, a Digital Pedagogy and Media Specialist and part of the MBA Design Team. In this podcast, we talk to leaders from a variety of industries about how they make decisions and why decision-making is fundamental to business performance and success. These interviews were recorded via the internet, so please keep this in mind as you listen to this episode. For this first episode of the MBA 8002 podcast, you'll be introduced to the concept of business decision-making. We discuss types of business decisions, their triggers, and who's responsible for making them. Nia Yari Giam, Jagenba, Na Gayabu, Yarawa Peoples, Nia Toomba. This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Giabul and Yarrawa peoples in a place called Toowoomba. There have been few simple decisions in the working life of my guest for this episode. As the Attorney General for Queensland and then the Deputy Premier, the Honourable Paul Lucas is a household name in Australian politics. Mr Lucas, now retired from political life, has returned to his first career in law, but continues to serve in many various non-executive director roles for organisations such as the Institute for Urban Indigenous Health and the Central Highlands Development Corporation. Paul Lucas, welcome to the show. Thanks, Daniel. Paul, can you tell me a little bit about your current role and the organisation you work for? Well, currently, I have a number of different roles in my post-political career, I'm uh, a solicitor back in practice as a solicitor with uh, an Eastern Seaboard law firm holding Redlick, helping their clients uh, in all sorts of different areas, but in particular, understanding you know, the wants and wishes of governments uh, beyond mere legislative compliance. Uh, I'm on the body, the boards of three Indigenous bodies, one in the health sphere, two native titles, ones, one in South Australia, one in Western Australia. Uh, plus a number of community organisations and on the Central Highlands Development Corporation based in Emerald, uh, encouraging regional economic development. You've had a a prominent political life um, in Queensland politics. Um, And as you say, you're you're serving as a member on lots of boards. You've had a very well-known career, but how did it start? Well, I had 16 years in politics, 11 of those as a minister and four as a deputy premier. Um, I was a a lawyer uh, prior to uh, being uh, elected as a Member of Parliament in 1996 at age 34. And um, in fact, I'm a graduate of uh, USQ um, uh, in the MBA program. I started that when I was a lawyer and I finished it when I was a politician early on in my time. But um, look, as a lawyer, you can help people individually, but Politics allows you to make change at a societal level, to help whole communities, to help whole states, or if you have national, help whole countries. So you can change things at a far greater level to improve society. That's an excellent insight into, I guess, what drives you, Paul, to um, embark on the career that you have. Um, And it brings me really to the next part of our podcast, that background that you've given me, which is the significant decision. What have you brought to share with us today? Well, you make so many decisions when you're a minister in politics and there are literally hundreds of them that I could speak about that are major ones. But the one I thought that I might talk about was the uh, inner city busway projects and in particular the King George Square and Roma Street busway projects. And uh, that was a very complex task. Many of your uh, students would be aware of the fact that Brisbane now has a busway that connects to the South East Busway to Roma Street Railway Station 
under King George Square where there's a busway station connecting to the Queen Street one. So that project is one that was very complex but also very enjoyable. And it used to be something that was bemoaned in Brisbane, the public transport system, but as you say, a very complex thing to try and figure out. What was the trigger for the initial decision? Well, a few triggers. From my point of view, I'm a public transport uh, fanatic. I think I still catch public transport regularly. Brisbane is a low population density city in a low population density country. And we didn't have high ridership in public transport. And there are a couple of factors behind that. One was relating to the rules of the structure and the other was relating to where the public transport was. One of the things we had to change was we didn't have integrated ticketing. So if you were anywhere outside of Brisbane and you had a multimodal journey, or even if you were in Brisbane and you wanted to get on the train and then on the bus, or if you're in Logan or Toowoomba and you wanted to get on the bus, then the train, or come down to Brisbane and do things, you actually had to pay a separate fare for each time you went on a different journey. And that really penalised the people who were the most disadvantaged in transport, the outer urban people. So we fixed that with integrated ticketing and first of all started uh, with uh, a paper ticket that was integrated, then went for the uh, the go card, the, the smart card. But that then allowed us to have the flexibility then to address what do we need to do to change our network? And ironically, the best thing you can do for people in outer urban areas is make sure that there are things in the inner city that they properly connect to. Then you can do the outer urban stuff as well. Cross River Rail is a bit like that as well. So what we did was we saw that for too long, Brisbane and Greater Brisbane had a train line that didn't really connect to much. We had major trip generators such as hospitals, such as universities that didn't really connect to much. Uh, And so the opportunity to sit down using our transport plan to say, what infrastructure do we need to do to connect things? So, for example, now all our major hospitals are connected by busways. The University of Queensland, um, uh, Green Bridge, from the Bogo Road busway to the South East busway, is the second busiest bus station in the Brisbane network. So what we needed to do was to say, well, how do we connect the rail system? Uh, How do we connect inner-city Brisbane with buses? And that was this project, the King George uh, Roma Street busway. And all of a sudden, it meant you could hop off one platform at Roma Street if you came on a train and then walk straight onto a bus and actually have a bus station that was in the middle of the city, both in King George Square and the older one in Queen Street. So that was what this project was about. And it was actually quite complex from an engineering point of view as well. So those factors really being to allow people to access public transport easily, to get where they need to go to those major places, to connect public transport, and to make it simple for people to use at at a relatively um, well-priced figure. Lots of things going on there. Correct. And and what we wanted to do is to fundamentally, you know, you don't get up and excited every morning because you see a taxi, a bus or a train. (laughs) Where it takes you to. Well, Well, I do, but... Um, It's where it takes you to. And so, for example, again, well over 70% of um, uh, journeys, I think it's actually up around 80, mid-80s, to Suncorp Stadium up by public transport. Why? Because it is properly served by it. Much lower at the Gabba, about 20%. That'll be the opposite once Cross River Rail is built because there's a station there. So it's actually seeing where people are going from and to. But perhaps the most difficult part of it, frankly, was saying, well, How do we actually get those relationships? The state was the one with the money to build it, but you just can't, the fact that you've got the money to do it, it doesn't mean you can do something. You have to have community support. And what was critical 
with the uh, inner city busways was our relationship with the Brisbane City Council and then Mayor uh, Campbell Newman, uh, which was a very important relationship in getting this project done. Right. So it's not simply a case of you saying, this needs to happen, here's the plan, go and do it. You, There's a lot of relationships there that need to be met. Well, yes. And just because you can legally do something, the state can do all sorts of things legally. It can take people's land, it has to compensate them for it. But, you know, you start doing that without working with the community, you'll soon come to a, you know, a grinding halt. And we've seen that up in Toowoomba with the um, uh, interstate railway line, uh, the, the, the freight line. The fact that the federal government can do it is not the issue. The fact is that there's some opposition from farmers to some of the route. So what you needed to do, what we needed to do was have a really strong trust relationship with the council. And there haven't been good trust between the previous, ironic to say, previous Labor administration and the Labor state government uh, a previous mayor actually wanted to build Clem 7. The state was not very cooperative with it. And then the state wanted to build the busway and the, 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 the mayor wasn't cooperative with the state. I got elected and appointed as transport minister and I said, look, if the Brisbane City Council wants to build Clem 7, wants to build a tunnel, and it was a new mayor by then, the fact that the state might want it done slightly differently, does that mean that we stop them doing it? Uh, and it was quite ridiculous. And so I took the view that we worked cooperatively with them and then when it came to us, the need to build the busway, we'd established that good relationship with Mayor Newman and he was very cooperative with that because we had to, you know, knock down half of King George Square Brisbane City Council car park and completely disrupt it for several years while we built a busway through it and muck around city traffic. So you do need to have that cooperation and that came from building trust. How do you build trust with an opposing political party? You've got to show them that you're not prepared to take advantage of short-term gains, that you'll stand alongside them uh, when there are, you know, problems along the way. You don't just leave them to uh, to it. And you've seen them with the pandemic at the moment. There have been a couple of occasions where, you know, you've had politicians fighting with each other from different sides. It was terrible during the fires uh, at, at last summer. Uh, you actually get much more brownie points from the public when you're actually working together and you can do that if you have that mutual relationship of trust. Uh, that's the important thing, that you can trust each other, that your word is your bond. If you say that you'll do something, then you will do it and then the other side will start to trust you and you then. And it strikes me that that's something that could be um, applied to small and medium-sized businesses as well and their interactions with other small businesses or government bodies. Oh, absolutely correct. Uh, and if you, you, you know, you talk with some of the big private sector players, you know, this might almost sound old-fashioned, but many of their relationships are not based upon what the contract says. It's based upon charging someone a fair thing. You don't charge them because they're in tough times, whatever you can, because if you send them broke, how is that good for you for competition in the future? How is that sustainable for you to screw a, a supplier into the wall so badly that they go out of business and there's less competition than the person that you didn't go to then jack up the price for you? So it's about relationships and sustainability. Everyone does well if everyone gets a fair go. And is that something that's stuck with you since your early career in law? Uh, absolutely, because one thing you learn in law is when your client is in a difficult situation and you're trying to rely on the lawyers on the other side to be reasonable, sure as eggs, next week you'll be the food will be on the other foot. You know, what goes around comes around and you need to have a reputation of being a person of your word and as we say in law, not being a sharp practice merchant, not being someone who is there, uh, you know, being difficult when they can be difficult and then wanting mercy when they can't. 
I want to move now to data, evidence, information that you you had to access to um, make the decisions you did uh, about this network. I assume there must have been lots and lots of data involved in these sorts of decisions. Uh, and that's one of the advantages of large decisions with the state, uh, that you have access to endless amounts of data. Mind you, it is not as certain uh, as data at uh, at other levels, because you know you're dealing with transport behavioural things, where you don't know what someone will bid for a project. You basically can do some estimates in relation to it, and also data. Uh, there's a rule of thumb with data, and it's important for business as well. The most accurate data is specially tailored data for the project at hand, but it costs and it takes time. Other data or general data is often less cost or even free, and it's quick but it's less tailored to you. So it's a bit like if you want a shirt that fits you perfectly, go to the tailor and get measured up, but it costs more. If you want a shirt that you can get quicker and cheaper, go to one and get it off the rack. And so often if you've got, a, a, say, a small business in tourism, some of the data might be useful in general public data on tourism issues or supplied by an industry organisation, but other times you might want specific data. That costs and it takes time. So you actually have to balance uh, balance that, I think. So there's some strategy there to taking the data that's that's there, but also maybe talking to people on the ground and thinking, you know, there's a balance between when will I deliver the project, how much is it going to cost, how happy are the public going to be with it. There's lots of ba- things to balance. Well, I, I, when you're talking about major public uh, infrastructure projects, of course, there's not just the data, but there's also, uh, yes, the issue of timing. And um, I like to sort of say, like, if you're going to build a railway line, uh, and let's take the example of the railway line, say, to Toowoomba for passengers, that railway line is identified and protected, the corridor, but it may not be built for many years. But the, the important thing that you can do early on is get the corridors identified so land doesn't, houses don't get built over the top of them. You know, it's that planning up front. And can I tell you now that I'm getting older, the long term becomes a short term really quickly. <laughs> and, and I can remember a, a, a very brief story about that, Daniel. Um, uh, when I was transport minister, I remember we were having to acquire uh, some land for a third track between Salisbury and Currabee so the Gold Coast trains could come around the Ben Lee trains. And the department came and saw me and, and, and I have to sign the resumption orders as a minister. And I said, what are we doing? They said, oh, three track corridor minister. And I said, well, hang on. I know with the Gold Coast, one day we're going to need four tracks. So why would we go to and go to local landowners and resume enough land for one track when in 15 years' time or 10 years' time we'll come back and need it for a fourth? We are much better off in paying a less, you know, it might be cost a little bit more now, but in the long term, much less, getting the corridor now at four tracks so in the future we don't have to go back and annoy people or they haven't built something on it. So you've got to think longer term when you're in government uh, and there are a lot of examples where that hasn't been done to great cost. Is there a, an amount of intuition that you can use when you're making these sorts of decisions, or is intuition not something that can come into such a decision for government? Oh, look, no, I think there is, um, that you should be constantly saying, look, where are we going to be in the future? What does this look like? Uh, I was out at Ripley yesterday, and uh, I can remember as the minister who was responsible for the priority development area out there when it was all paddocks. Well, you know, there's a, a, you know, we built the Centenary Highway extension out there. The railway line is out to Springfield now. They weren't there. And you actually have to foresee what will happen there and indeed now foresee what will happen after that. So, um, you know, it's about having the persistence to 
not just to think in short term as to who's going to vote for you tomorrow or who's going to do this or who's going to complain in the paper, but to actually say, where do we want to be in the longer term and what decisions do we need to take now to get there? Following up and thinking uh, about that decision now, what was the impact of the decision, do you feel, of uh, increasing and, and benefiting the, the public transport system in Brisbane? Well, it, it started the real focus on integrating public transport and to actually saying it's not just a busway or a railway line, it's the discussion about where does it go from to. And so, for example, you know, the Cross River Rail, rail discussion now is a no-brainer. You know, the, the, the new railway station that will be built under Albert Street will be the busiest in Queensland. And it will be the first time we've had a railway station in the middle of the city, not up on the hill or down at Roma Street, but in the middle. And there are reasons historically why that, that's the case. It's no one's fault when, you know, 100 years ago that they put them in the wrong place. You know, that was about geography and flooding and engineering as it then stood. But it, it, um, it it's a big thing. So we now think about it, transport is so that they go... Planning and infrastructure go hand in glove. They're not separate. Land use, you're going to build a railway line, you care about what's around it uh, because it's too expensive not to. Have you learnt something from that process that you can reflect on? Oh, well, constantly. Um, it, it's actually about looking at anything and seeing that, you know, where will we be further down the track? What do we need to do now to keep our options open in the future? There's a principle called path dependency, um, which I think is a really important principle and it, it it's a bit like this when a tree grows another branch it has to grow it from an existing branch so that dictates where the new branch come from when uh, the tree grows near a say a pergola it will avoid the timber because it can't grow through it railway lines public infrastructure are in places because they were heavily influenced by where they first started so today you may not build a railway line if you were servicing the city that had its stations at uh, up where Central and Roma Street stations are. You would build them way down, you know, going down Queen Street. But if you're going to add on to something, you have to add it onto the existing railway line, except when you have a discontinuous change, so a completely new project or a natural disaster, when you are then really in a position where you can rebuild something in the correct way or correct place or with a brand new project to do it afresh. So um, it's no one's fault uh, that, for example, you know, why do the places like Charleville flood? And you sit back there and people say, isn't that terrible? The people who built the township of Charleville, they built it where it floods. Well, you've got to sit back and think there that, well, when they built it in the mid 1800s, you actually had to have people living near where the river was because that's where they got their water and that's where they grew their crops. They didn't pump it. Uh, they didn't want to live, they, 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 living on the hill was too far away. So things happen for a reason. It's when you actually make those changes for the future that matter as well. And so that's the balance. How much you're dictating, you know, why do we drive on the left-hand side of the road and other places drive on the right-hand side? Why does America have still miles per hour, not kilometres per hour? Sometimes what happens in the future is dictated by the past. Sometimes you can change it, sometimes you can't. And a fabulous story. You've got a lot of things to deal with there when you're making such decisions. They're not made in, in vacuums. Well, Brisbane got, oh, sorry, Australia got the best colour television system in the world, PAL-D, because we didn't get our colour television system till much, much later, 1974. The Americans had a system in the, I think, the, the, you know, the late 50s, but their system isn't as good as ours because theirs was an earlier adopted one. So, you know, 
and they weren't going to, they're not going to change the system now. No. <laughs> um, having said that, they've now gone to digital and I don't think it matters anymore. No. <laughs> but that's how it is. Paul, we're going to move now to um, a questions that are particular to this week of learning, where we're looking at decision making in a business context and we're looking at decision types and decision triggers. It might seem like an obvious question, but why is decision-making important for business performance and success? Well, here's a, this might be a, a glib or a trite thing to say, but uh, if I want to go from Brisbane, where I live, to the Gold Coast for a holiday, uh, I get onto the M1 and it signs says the Gold Coast. And with current technology, I can't take my hands off the steering wheel and close my eyes and expect my car will just drop me there. You, you constantly have to adjust. You constantly have to appraise what you're doing. So, you know, and, and it's no different with business. The analogy works perfectly. What do I want to do this weekend? Have I got free time? Have I got the money? Will I enjoy it? Where am I going? When do I go? What adjustments do I need to make? If I'm told now one, you know, 30 minutes down the track, there's going to be a five-hour blockage, do I abandon it? And business decision-making is the same. Where do you want to do? Is it core? Does it relate to what you're doing? Is it a new area? And what are those decision points and what information? And very importantly, Daniel, when you make an exit, uh, we've all seen the footage of people hanging onto hot air balloons and not letting go of the, the rope until it's too late. It's all, all, all okay when it's half a metre off the ground, a bit more than it's one metre. When it's two metres, you might hurt yourself. Anything more than that, you get a serious injury or die. And you need to have, when you're making decisions in business, exit points, um, just like you do in government policy as well. Do you plan those exit points ahead of time? Well, you should do. Uh, and, and uh, you know, and then you've got to overcome issues like confirmatory bias and all the problems that you have in looking for, uh, 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 you know, affirmation when you should be saying, listen, time to get, you know, to get out. You hear people in the stock market saying, if you invest in a stock, then perhaps if it drops below 20%, of what its value is, you get out, even if you think it might go better later because you've got to cut your losses at some point in time. You know, uh, in business, you often rely on people for credit. Now, I can tell you how you can have no bad debts, and that is have no one, no one on credit. Now, if you have no one on credit, you might have no bad debts, but you might have 10% of the customers. So, you know, there's no risk, no reward without risk, and you've got to take those things into account. Can you give me an example um, not necess- necessarily your own decision, but but something that you recall that where a decision had an adverse impact on performance. Oh, absolutely, and I'll give you a couple if you like, um, and I'm happy to give them to you from from uh, from government. Cairns Hospital is a very important hospital, of course, the far north Queensland, and I remember uh, when I was a minister that we um, had we promised to build a very large new block with operating theatres and uh, medical wards and the like. Very important. The problem was that when you build, and this is a path dependency issue too, uh, the problem is that when you build a new block at a hospital, you want it to be next to the current block because people move from one side to the other, you know, have an operation move in one ward to the other. And the problem was that where the block should have gone some years previously, someone had built a car park. But that's a perfect. That, that was a perfectly good car park. There was nothing wrong with it. But if we were going to build a hospital block there, the car park had to go. So we'd had to knock down a perfectly good car park to build a, a, a building there and move the car park and build it across the road a, a little bit. And that problem could have been overcome by people properly thinking out strategic land use for that site beforehand, doing a proper master plan. I'll give you another example. 
the Harvey Bay Hospital um, in Queensland is a low set hospital. Why is it low set? Because when you're first building those regional hospitals, it's much cheaper to build a low set hospital. Uh, you don't actually have to worry about elevators. But as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, at some point in time, you keep on building it more low set, it then becomes more of a challenge to go from one end of a single floor hospital than to go up multiple floors and you've used all the building site. So you actually do have to think at what point in time you have to make you have to make changes. But my best one of all was the Bowen Hospital. At Bowen, a relatively small hospital, it had a helipad there for Medivac and the like. And the uh, a previous hospital administration had decided that they didn't need all this land around the helipad. It was surplus. Uh, the helipad was big enough. So they sold off the land around the helipad, thinking that the helipad was big enough, and it was for the rules. But about a year later, the federal regulators said, oh, no, you need now, everyone has to have more land around helipads. And they'd sold it off. So they actually had to buy it back from the people that they sold it to. In the meantime, the people they'd sold it to had got a development application quite legitimately over the land so that they had to buy it back from them at a premium. Now, they at the time, they were going on their known, uh, known views, but I, I sort of can't help but thinking, and I said this in Parliament at the time, that, you know, when you're dealing with public assets, sometimes selling surplus land, you might find that in the future it might actually have a different use. Uh, so you have to be very careful. So there's, there are a couple of examples of uh, ones that I, you know, spring to mind. So you have to plan for your eventualities. You have to consider what could happen down the road and not sort of stitch yourself up. Well, and, and we know the classic ones in business when, uh, you know, Kodak thought it was a film company rather than an image capturing company. And you've seen now that BHP is investing in uh, uh, non-coking coal steel research. Now, they sell the greatest amount of metallurgical coal in the world, but they've realised that that may not in the longer term be sustainable. So you actually have to evaluate what sort of business you're in. And um, companies now call themselves entertainment companies. They don't call themselves amusement parks or film companies. They're the broadest possible ambit. And to actually have a look at what you are, you know, is a really significant um, issue, I think, and understand that and what you might be. Can you take me through the major differences you see between making decisions in a business context versus a political one? Sure. And I'll bullet point these and you can, if you want me to, um, elaborate on them, uh, happy to do so. First of all, in business, the decision-making process is almost always confidential for very good reason. You don't want to tip your competitors off. Um, you want to be able to actually um, assess things, uh, uh, you know, without any other pr pressures. You don't want suppliers knowing. You don't want people, uh, you know, you might be looking at expanding a mine. Uh, if a competitor knows, they might buy the mine lease before you. So you've got to, all of those sorts of things. Whereas the government, you can just resume the land. Uh, you're dealing with private money if you're in business. Of course, public companies have shareholders' money, but still it's they put that money into trust management to invest. So it's private money, not public money. It's a profit motive, though increasingly for purpose and triple bottom line is important sustainability, but still it's ultimately a profit motive. Uh, and generally the corporate sector have a far higher risk profile. They are far more prepared to accept risk uh, in the interest of generating reward. Uh, at a political level, you're dealing with things that usually are for public good, 
the country doesn't make any more money because we have better prisons or a better court system. Uh, they're just necessary. Uh, hospitals don't make money. Uh, government has a far lower risk appetite. The worst thing you can say to a minister is, yes, you should do this, minister. No one's ever dealt, done it anywhere else in the world. <laughs> that makes a minister the blood drain from their face. They always <laughs> want to know who's where it's worked previously, uh, where are the reference sites, you know, the like. Political decision-making is more detached from delivery. So ministers do not um, involve themselves in the delivery of a project. They might be involved with deciding to do it. They might be in, involved with timing. But, and there might be aspects of it that they might involve themselves in, you know, if there's an issue with a, you know, I don't know, a, a road going on, a, resuming particular sorts of land or properties or something, they might have some, uh, some view on that. But how it's constructed, how it's bid, how it's operated is not a matter at a political level you decide. In government, media interest is significant, quite rightly, because you're dealing with public funds. And finally, in government, transparency is important. Uh, the public will want to know why you are doing things and what processes. So in the private sector, it's a bit like maybe you can just write down the answer to the math sum in school, you know, but, but when you're in government, you've got to show you're working. <laughs> Excellent analogy. You touched on a point there about business being uh, a profit-driven, motivated sector, whereas politics is not so much one that's driven by profits, more driven by um, people and their lifestyle, the operation of the country or the, the state. But always when it comes to the election times, government is compared quite often with business, especially small business, and, and when it comes to the, um, the budget, that's where the comparison is made. Are we going to be in the red? Um, how do we run a government? Uh, we run a government like like uh, you know a small business, and that's often the discussion that the leading politician might have with um, a commentator from the floor, uh, the other side of the camera. Well, um, you know, it's always a, an interesting analogy to talk about, you know, that the, the, uh, that, that sort of issue. Government is and is, and is not like business. Um, uh, governments, um, uh, first of all, uh, there are so many things that you can do in government. The trick is to work out what is appropriate. Uh, you, you know, uh, when pensions were introduced into Australia in 1909, their uh, average life expectancy was 59, and they were introduced for people, men aged 65 and over. So if you live six years longer than you're expected to, you've got the pension. Lucky you. Now, average life expectancy is about 82, and you still get the pension. At, at, I think now at the moment, it's about 66 or 67. So if we were introducing the pensions today, you know, it'd be at age 88 if we were using the same formula that they used when they first introduced them. So in government, it is a shifting, it's a running race that you will never get to the finish of. And that's appropriate because government constantly has to do things. But when will a government, and no society will ever say, gee, we've built enough public transport or we've built enough roads or we've got everyone healthy enough because the whole thing about human endeavour is that you're wanting to improve the lot of yourselves, um, you know, your, your community uh, forever, as you should do. So there's, you know, I think that's significant. But government is operates at a far higher level. Government has the power to tax. Uh, government has, um, uh, and it, it doesn't have to budget on the same way as the individual businesses do. But where it is the same is it has to be accountable for what it does. Um, and it can't do everything that it wants to do. Uh, but it has to be a steward for public money. 
it's funny when you're a member of parliament, people would come in and visit you and they'd say to me, oh, Mr. Lucas, I'm really sorry to take up the time. And I'd say, hang on, your, your taxes pay my wages. That's what I'm here for. You know, you, you, don't apologise to me for coming to see me because that's what I, I have a job because of you. And you have to have that orientation, I think, in politics or else you shouldn't be in it. Can you define the decisions that you made in Parliament as tactical, operational, strategic? Oh, yes, and uh, and probably the easiest is to give some some examples. The strategic one is, of course, you know, deciding about a, a transport policy, South East Queensland Regional Transport Policy, the Bruce Highway Strategy, for example, what you are likely to want to do, when you're likely to need to do it, etc., operational then becomes, um, you know, when you're actually physically going to do it. You know, we've got the money now, let's go and do it. Uh, and, you know, tactical, how are we going to do it? Or perhaps at a health level, uh, a strategic one might be to say, category three non-elective surgery is the least urgent. You can have waits up to a year, but you might have a whole lot of people who've been waiting longer than a year. So the government might have a strategy to say, right, we're now going to put extra bucket of money in so no one waits longer than a year for category three sur- surgery. Operational is perhaps, okay, we've decided to do that. Can we work with, say, the AMA uh, on a program like Surgery Connect, which is getting in doctors outside of their normal hours to use uh, operating theatres outside their normal hours so we're not wasting other resources or not wasting but not occupying other resources? Uh, Great, that's a different way of doing it. And then tactical is hospital management. Okay, what operations are we going to do today or this week? Can we group them together? And politicians aren't involved in that. You would think the way that media and oppositions carry on that they are, that that ministers decide who's going to get operated on today or ministers sit around the operating table saying, cut here, stitch there. Uh, Of course they don't, but that's that's how politics is. And that's why you'll find that the federal government will never take over the health system because no federal health minister wants to actually have to have to answer those sorts of questions in parliament like a state one does. Tell me, Paul, if you make a strategy, a long-term strategy, it's in the paper on black and white, does that then explicitly uh, tell you what to do operationally and tell you what to do tactically um, to carry out that strategy? No, nor should it. Uh, it it's, it's your guidebook. Again, let's use some analogies. I love analogies. Um, we're going to have a dinner party next month at our place. Uh, these are the sorts of people that we want to go. Here's our list. We're not saying now who absolutely is going to go. We're not saying now what you know uh, what the menu is going to be or what wine selection we're going to have or what we're going to talk about. And why do you need to have it at that higher level and at far more broader level? Because everything fits into everything else. So you couldn't just say, oh, we want to build a railway line between Bundaberg and Brisbane. And we won't think about how that fits in with everything else. So your overall policy is about doing that. So then when you get right, drill down to detail, you say, okay, well, if we build a line between Bundaberg and Brisbane that's quicker, that will also have a quicker freight service for the line north of Bundaberg because it has to go through Bundaberg to get to Brisbane. So what I'm saying to you is that they have to all be integrated in together. But of course, the other reason you don't have it mapped out in detail on advanced is technology changes or there are differences in needs or there might be something that's happened along the way. So you have to do both. And once you have that strategy, everyone's on the same page. Can can you throw it out or do you have to come back to it all the time, refer to that guide? Well, uh, you should use it as a basis, but strategy should be regularly reviewed as well. And boards do that as well. You have board strategy days um, to work out how the company's 
you know, what it should be doing and are there changes? Um, so governments are no, no different to that. The great thing about having a strategy that's properly formulated with all the consultation and the data is if you can get broad acceptance of that strategy, then it doesn't become a political football. So people aren't likely to change it if government changes. If you just make it a political plaything of the party in power at that point in time, the opposition will not be committed to it. And then you run the risk of, you know, flipping and flopping all over the place. And so nothing gets done in a sensible fashion. So that's another reason why you make sure that you broadly involve everyone in strategy so they all feel as if they've got ownership in it. How do decisions get made in a government level when you have ministers uh, for different uh, portfolios? How are those ministers talking to each other? How are they talking to the leader, our premier? How are they talking to opposition when they need to, or as you've outlined before, the mayor of the town that you need to make that decision for? Well, um, you know, I don't really have the time to go through parliamentary Westminster democracy in detail, but uh, essentially ministers administer departments uh, and departments are the way in which governments affect policies for the betterment of the community in which they serve. Parliament sets legislation, which are the rules uh, that uh, that have to apply, but most decisions of government are not ones based upon the law. And what I mean by that is that there's no law that says we should have a, 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 a high-speed railway line between Toowoomba and Brisbane. There might be a law that facilitates major projects, but that's not, you know, the, the, the idea of having a new railway line is a policy government and that's decided by cabinets and and they come and go with governments um so uh, and cabinets no different from the board of directors uh, you uh, accept in cabinet whilst each director doesn't tend to have a specialty though they might have a background of, of interest in cabinet you are responsible for a portfolio but you should take an interest in all of it because uh, so many decisions of government have to be coordinated uh, and as I said to you, if you're the transport minister, you need to be talking to the planning and the infrastructure minister because if you build a railway line and, there's, and the town planning doesn't meet with it or local government rules or relationships don't meet with it, then that's a problem as well. So cabinet is about resolving those issues between departments. The other difference is that a, a premier or a prime minister in our system are what you'd call a first among equals. They are not the same as a CEO. A CEO is far more like a mayor. The mayor has far greater power over the council than a premier has over the government. You may not understand that always, but that is how it is. And um, uh, yeah, so uh, um, and also a board of directors is not part of management, whereas a cabinet sort of is. It's a very complex situation with lots of moving parts in order to make these decisions. There's history and 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 the different people that you need to get on the same page as you outlined before, but. Also, there's a, a role that you have yourself in decision-making. Can you explain how you sort of see your role or saw your role when you were in government as someone who, I guess the buck stops with you in terms of that decision being made, but there's so many different people who have say in that. So how do you see your role specifically? Well, first of all, uh, I, and I should have indicated this previously, critical to government is the role of the public service and the public service is there to carry out the decisions of government, but to inform the decisions of government. So to provide fearless and non-political advice, uh, the best advice they can to the government on what are the alternatives available to it, and once government makes a decision to uh, to faithfully implement that decision. You know, most most things that happen in a government every day, very routine uh, that the public service does without any need to consider policy. They don't go down at the 
Wyndham Department of Transport office and when someone comes in to register a car, say, oh, what, what would the Labor Party say about that? What would the LNP say? You want to, you want to look at the I-chart. These are the 99.99% of government transactions with the public have no relationship to ministers or, 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 or those sorts of things. Um, it's at a far different level than, you know, uh, I suppose ministers might decide to close the department office somewhere and that, that, that'll certainly be an issue. But uh, those sorts of things are at a, different, um, uh, at, a, at a different level. But also, you know, you do need to talk to the various stakeholders. And this is one of the things when I do my international work with overseas governments, too many times people think that the other, you know, the, the three critical mistakes when you ask someone what a, from a perhaps a less uh, less sophisticated administratively government than Australia's has, you ask who are stakeholders, and they say external stakeholders or other departments or the president's office, and they're like, oh no no no, they're internal stakeholders. External stakeholders are public, small business, large business, industry organisations villages, communities, NGOs, they're external stakeholders and they're critical. The other thing that, that uh, they often, and you say, well, why do you talk to external stakeholders? And usually the decision will be, well, you have to explain things, we'll have to get them on side. And that's a really rudimentary view of the world. Yes, you have to do that. But the other thing is you talk to them because they actually might have some really good perspectives. They actually might have some great suggestions about how things should proceed. And I'll give you an example that was one that uh, we did when I was the transport minister. Uh, we, the government needs to build bridges to upgrade main road bridges throughout Queensland, old wooden bridges, put concrete ones in. And we have a program of doing that. But what the private sector said to us, well, look, don't have a program of building 200 bridges and say, you know, here's a contract to build this bridge here. And then 50 kilometres up the road, there's another one. Then 150 up the road, there's a different one. Why don't you aggregate bridge projects in areas that are all the same? So you say, okay, here's the package for our bridge projects for 100 kilometres around Charleville. And so the private sector can establish all the resources there at once. And that, that, that way they've got continuity of employment. That's good for the community. It lowers their business costs. That means less costs are passed on to government. So you get those sorts of advantages by listening to the private sector telling you how best to do things. You actually don't have to do what they say, but usually they have really good perspectives. And so it's a good idea to do what they say if it's if there's a benefit in them. There's g- gathering information, um, but also giving it back as well. Yep. Well, no one ever got hurt asking and seeking information. Uh, you get hurt if you don't or if you, or if you listen and then take the wrong decisions. You don't get hurt by listening to people in the first place. And an excellent uh, note to leave on that idea of being connected to community and working together, listening as part of uh, making decisions. One other point, though, can I just quickly say, Daniel, that, that I think is very important for businesses and government, and that is the best decisions are made where there are people who have a, a differing points of view. One of my favourite cabinet ministers was a guy that you know frequently would argue with views of others, but that made you actually think of those issues in-house. If you get the group think because you all think the same way, then you'll find out to your cost when you implement a bad decision and no one buys your product or, or it's a failure. If you actually have people on your board and in your management team who have got permission from management to argue issues in a sensible way, then you'll get better decisions in the first place. And that is so important, having proper what we call in law contradictors or having people who have diversity of views who argue issues out. 
So perhaps in a business, it might be important to have staff who potentially disagree in a good way with leadership and have their own view that those views can then be looked at and integrated to make a final decision. Well, if, if, if that's right. So if someone's, if you're thinking about a policy in the decision-making process, someone says, oh, look, I don't think this will go down very well with a particular community or a product segment or something. If they've said it then there, you might say, well, okay, well, let's go and check that out. And you've looked at, you know, let's look at decisions like when Coke changed the flavour of Coca-Cola and they have made more decisions Had people been asking the questions better around the boardroom table, they mightn't have gotten a group that can make disastrous decisions. You know, the more that you have people who are prepared to argue with you in a respectful way, the more that you're prepared to encourage people to think differently and talk them through the better decision-making process you'll get. Paul Lucas, thank you for coming on the show. Pleasure. Information about our guests can always be found in the podcast show notes in your podcast app or on the course site. This has been a University of Southern Queensland podcast produced by the Office for the Advancement of Learning and Teaching.